nevertheless. Again, it's good to see you tonight, and uh, we're going to take as our text two very familiar verses. By the way, does anybody need or want an outline for tonight? We have a few extras if you want one. Uh, just raise your hand, and uh, Mike Baldwin in the back, Joseph, will give that to you. Anybody at all? Okay, just uh, keep your hand up. They'll give that to you. We are looking, of course, and uh, most of you know we are, we are in, uh, coming toward the end of our um, study. Uh, we, we have done a topical study for many months now, several months, uh, and, and the, the motivation or the, the text for the entire uh, series was, is based upon uh, the verses that we read in Isaiah. And so this is just to remind you, in case you haven't been here for a while or you've forgotten, uh, one, of the, one of the great passages in, in Jeremiah chapter 9, of course, is where he goes through this series of questions. He says, so wherein do you glory, or what are you glorying in in your life? What's important? And he comes and he says to the, to the nation of Israel, and I think the message certainly is not lost on them, it's still important for us, he said, if you're going to glory in anything, if you're going to, to essentially be boastful or proud about anything in life, be proud that you understand and know me. Understanding and knowing God. That should be our life's pursuit. I've said for many years from this pulpit that I believe that every believer, no matter how much or how little education they have, all of us are called to be good theologians. That simply means this, that we study God. Theology is the study of God. Theos, God, and ology, that word means the study of. We're to be and to pursue the study of God. That is, that is one of the main tasks of every believer. We cannot do that apart from his word. Now, you can read uh, books and, and maybe uh, theology books about God, but even those, as good as some of those are, they are no substitute for the word itself. And so we must, we must pursue those things. Our goal is to know him intimately and to know him better. We should be able to look at our lives if we have been saved for any length of time, and we should be able to assess it in this way that I am more uh, um, intimate with my Lord, I am more mature in my faith than I was even a year ago, and certainly several years ago. You see, it is a maturing process. It's part of the sanctification that we have. We'll talk about that. But it's part of becoming more and more like our Savior. In fact, what did the Lord tell us through His Word in the book of Romans? That, that we were... Uh, that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, when we come into his rest, as we talked about this morning, when we are saved, when we know him, it, it, is, it is that which we should do in our lives. It is the lifelong pursuit that we become progressively more and more and more like our Savior as the years go by. And the question is, how are we doing in that regard? How are we doing in that regard? That takes some introspection into our own hearts. Not inspection of others, but introspection into our own. You see, we're very good at the other, but we are a little reluctant to do 
uh, the former rather than the latter. We, we're, or the latter rather than the former. We're, we're very good at inspecting others. And we have designated ourselves as fruit inspectors. But we are very reluctant to do it to ourselves. And we need to very often. We need to sit ourselves down and have a good talk with ourselves. Now, don't do it in the car where others can see you when you're driving, okay? Uh, and don't do it at work. People will think you're strange, all right? But sometimes you need to have a good talk with yourself. Do you ever have a good talk with yourself? Uh, if you don't, you need to, all right? And sit yourself down and say, where am I? Where are you as far as your walk with the Lord? It's important to do that. It is not, well, you know, so-and-so, man, they're really, uh, you know, this or that, or they're really having a time, or, you know, I wish they were more like this, or they wouldn't do that. And we can go on and on about others uh, as long as, as, as we simp- uh, sometimes do. But what about those quiet moments where we sit ourselves down and say, Lord, where am I in my following you? Lord, how closely am I in my relationship with you? Lord, is this relationship characterized by, by a sweet harmony whereby we get along and whereby we are walking together? It should be that way. And it should be sweeter It should be, uh, again, deeper. It should be more consistent as the years go on, as we mature in the faith. Anyway, we are looking at the uh, last two attributes that we want to cover. And uh, I must admit that these are are a pleasure to to preach. Uh, How can we not um, be thrilled at being able to look at and examine the grace of God and the mercy of God. The two great, what we call, twin doctrines of Scripture that affect you and I on a daily basis and and indeed moment by moment every day that we live. And so there are certain topics that are, again, uh, wonderful for us to look at and, and a pleasure to preach, and this is one of them. And so we're kind of taking our time deliberately going through these last two. We're looking at God's grace and how we defined it. It is God's goodness to the undeserving, and that's exactly who we are. And that's what we need to always think about when we think of the term grace. It is God's unmerited favor, unmerited favor. And that's what you need to consider and remember And again, I want to reiterate something that we've seen as we have begun looking at that attribute of God. And now we know God is a God of grace and we are now applying that concept of his essence, who he is, to us. How does that affect us in our daily lives and how we live? Well, it affects us every moment, uh, as I said, uh, in our lives. Look, there is not a moment... As a child of God, there is not a moment that you live that you are not living within the grace of God. Did you realize that? Every moment, the grace of God is operative. And that's important for you to remember. It's also important to remember that grace does not come about, as we have said, because of my merit or my performance in the Christian walk. You know, that's a very freeing concept, isn't it? Again, I I can't work my way towards God's grace. God's grace is what it is, and he gives it to us. 
And he gives it to us even when we do not deserve it as his child. Now, we don't deserve it initially when we're saved, but we certainly don't deserve it when we fall short of the glory of God. But here's the wonderful thing, and it's enough to make even an Episcopalian shout a little bit, and that's this, is that God's grace is shed abroad even when we do fall short of the glory of God. It's still there. He still loves us with an everlasting love. His grace is still shed abroad in our hearts. And when we realize that we have, we have fallen again, we say along with the psalmist, you know, though, I utterly, though he fall, he is not utterly cast down because God upholdeth him with his hand. My friends, that's because of God's grace. Have you experienced that? The sins that thus so easily beset us, as the author of Hebrews says, we're weighted down with those things, those habitual sins. That all of us in this room, we have, we have certain sins that, that we are bent towards in our life. And we go to God and we plead the mercy and the grace of God over and over again. And when we fall again to repeat the psalmist, we're not utterly cast out or cast down. What does he say? If you confess, I will do what? Forgive. What is that based upon, Christian? His grace. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that you can go at any moment, at any time, numerous times, and again, that sin that we have trouble with in our lives, and we say, well, Lord, here I am again. Here I am once again pleading thy grace and thy mercy and thy blood upon uh, these sins that I've committed. And what does he do? He forgives. He does not keep a tally and say, well, my, my grace is going to run out when you have come to me the 1,335th time. And then once that line has been crossed, my, my grace is done. Aren't you thankful for that? You know, we sing a song about that. And Wesley says, uh, he, he talks about the fact of a, of a thousand falls. And yet God is still the merciful, gracious God that he is. Folks, we have a good God that gives grace to the undeserving. And that is you and me. And so we, need, we have a lot to be thankful for. In this outline, I'll just share something with you in the, at the beginning, if you have it there before you. There was a, there was a great writer uh, named Sir Robert Anderson. Maybe some of you are familiar with him. He's a very interesting individual. Um, he, he, was not, he was not necessarily always a full-time minister. He actually, he actually worked in Scotland Yard uh, as a law enforcement officer back in the day in the um, late 19th century, early 20th century. But he, he wrote many good, very, very difficult, deep theological works. And one of them was entitled The Gospel and Its Ministry. And he writes this, As surely as the sin of man brought death, the grace of God shall bring eternal life to every sinner who believes. One sin brought death, but grace masters all. Isn't that a good statement? If sin abounded, grace abounds far more. Grace is conqueror. 
grace reigns. And so tonight we want to begin looking at the sufficiency of God's grace. We defined it last time, and now we look at the sufficiency of God's grace. I think, again, Christian, this will be a this is a blessing and should be to the heart of every believer. This should bring about within us a joy that is overwhelming to our souls when we really think about what is going on when it comes to God's grace. And so we want to look at the sufficiency of God's grace. And so what does it do? That's who he is. But what does it do when he conveys that grace to us? Number one, it is sufficient to save. It's sufficient to save. We are drawn by God's grace. Now, uh, just so you know, we're going to look at a lot of different uh, scripture passages. So have your Bible uh, ready to turn to these uh, different uh, passages. Now, I almost forgot. Let's go back and, and look at the, um, the text that I was talking about. Very familiar. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then I'll have you turn to John in a moment. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we, we referenced that, I believe, this morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, uh, lest anyone should boast. Again, what he said, for by grace, it is all dependent upon that. Everything that we have, everything that we are, uh, is, is by and through the vehicle of God's grace, because that's who he is in his person. And so, again, we learn about what that is. But God's grace can save, it does save us when we believe that he died. Now, again, this is dovetailing, um, I didn't plan it that way, but it's dovetailing somewhat with the message this morning. And we, we are saved, we come into his rest or into his kingdom, as we spoke of, through the vehicle of his grace. And what a wonderful experience that is. Can I just say this while we're here? Look, as you think about the fact that you've been saved by God's grace, can I just say this? I want to I encourage you this way. Never get over your salvation. You know, do you know what I mean by that? Don't forget it. Don't forget all that took place and the moment of your salvation when that burden was lifted from your heart and you became a new person and a new creature because of the grace of God. Never, ever get over your salvation. Think about it often. Meditate upon all that it is. Go back and read those passages in the scripture, especially the gospels that talk about the crucifixion of our Lord and what he went through for you and for me. And all of those things that he did as that sacrificial Passover lamb for you and I. Never get over your salvation. Think about it. Don't, don't just think about it when you come to church on Sunday. It should be something that you think about consciously every day when you have that relationship with your Lord. When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, it should be the, it should be the attitude and the, and the words that, that come and, and they, they fill your heart and your mind should be like Jeremiah who says, you know, uh, your, your mercy, we haven't gotten to mercy yet, but they're very closely linked. He says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. 
They're new every morning. And when your feet hit the floor, it should not be, okay, what's my task list for today or what's for breakfast? It should be, thank you, Lord, for waking me up. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you that I get to live another day. Thank you that you have saved me by thy grace. And thank you for all your blessings. Now, I need to go have my coffee. Okay. You see, there's a priority, folks. Let us never take for granted life and that which he gives us. And so when we wake up each day, you know what? That, that, that awakening, and the psalmist speaks of this, it is a gift of God. It's a gift of God that he gives us to live another day. And we, we need to make the most of it. We need to live within the thoughts of all that he has done. Well, Pastor, you just don't understand where I work, and especially on Mondays, and I just can't be in a good mood, <clears throat> and everybody's going to know about it when I get there. Okay. Can I just say this? This is a little rabbit trail, but I just want to say this. Look, others do not have, you, others do not have the right for you to be in a bad mood. What you need to do is, and this goes along with what we're saying, is what you need to do is, no matter how you're feeling, you need to remember that, that again, what you, how you live, the fact that you woke up, the fact that you're saved, the fact that you're on your way to heaven, you have all of glory awaiting you, you need to live by that grace and then convey it to others, no matter how you feel tomorrow. I know that's sometimes hard to do. Because we are who we are. We're humans. But this, this whole attitude that, well, everybody's going to know when I'm having a bad day. Well, they don't have a right to, you don't, you don't have a right, neither do they, to, to come across that way. We need to show, again, the grace of God that lives within us. No matter how our day is going, and no matter how the things that are surrounding us are going. We never see our Lord doing that. We see our Lord who was the epitome of a gracious individual when he was, uh, when he was uh, blasphemed and called names. He was called the son of Belial. He said, or you have a devil. And there were those that said many things to him. What was his response? He responded in grace. Yes, sometimes pointedly. But we never see him saying, well, you know what? I'm having a bad day. Nobody has been kind to me. And so therefore, I'm going to show it to them in turn. No, it wasn't that at all. And I wonder why we are not more like that many times. Just showing the loving kindness and the long-suffering that is all wrapped up in grace. John chapter 6. Turn with me over there if you haven't done so already. So the sufficiency of God's grace, he saves us. Never get over that salvation Remember how important this is. And again, I think that this particular verse, which is somewhat controversial in its interpretation, doesn't necessarily need to be so. And I want to I uh, kind of flesh this out a little bit so that we understand it. But John chapter 6 and verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, the word draw has the connotation of attracting or pulling. And so, we need to understand, again, and I want to say this entering into this explanation, that 
we, we do not believe these things based upon the fact that we, we are adhering to a, a, a system of man's theology that he's invented. We do so because this is what the Word of God says. In other words, I'm saying this. Um, we, don't, we don't believe that man comes to the Lord drawn by God um, uh, or comes to salvation drawn by God because of a theological system. We believe it because John says it here in this passage. Look, you and I, every one of us who are saved and claim the name of Christ, we could not, or, or we are not, let's put it that way, we are not in the kingdom of God because of our own doing. Do you agree with that? And yet sometimes we live, we, we, we tend to maybe live that way in practice. In theory, we know that's to be true. But in practice, we don't. In other words, every single one of us in here were drawn to the Savior by God himself. Okay? We need to understand that. So, look what the, I have a note in there by uh, Chris Well. He says this. Jesus attributes the initiation of the salvation experience not to man, but to the drawing power of God. Human response is always dependent upon God's initiative. Theologians, theologians call it provenient grace. The grace which provides revelation and conviction and directs a man to repentance and faith. It also involves making alive the spiritually dead, obstinate will of man. I agree with all that. But let's look at the term. We use the term provenient grace. What is that? Provenient grace is the preparing grace of God that is dispensed to all. Enabling a person to respond to the invitation of the gospel. Provenient grace may be defined as that grace which goes before or prepares the soul for entrance into the initial state of salvation. It is the preparatory grace of the Holy Spirit exercised towards man helpless in his sin. Now, again, there, I don't believe that, again, you have to hold necessarily to a, a human form uh, or a theological system invented by man to believe in this. Okay? Theologians differ as to whether this drawing grace, this provenient grace is, listen, is either resistible or irresistible. Okay. I personally do not believe, this is my own opinion, and you may differ, and guess what? We'll all still be in heaven together. Okay. Even if we differ on this. But I do not believe that this provenient grace is irresistible. And here's why. Look over with me at Matthew chapter 23. The reason why I don't believe in irresistible grace is because I believe that God who foreordains, God who has foreknowledge, God, again to use a very difficult word, predestines, somehow and in some way he weaves in man's free will into that. Now, how does he do that, Pastor Gray? I'm going to say something I've said many times. I don't know. And I would be afraid of any preacher or pastor who thinks that they can explain all that, by the way. I don't think we will know, this side of heaven, how those things work together. 
the foreknowledge, the predestination, and all those things that it's talked about, especially in Ephesians 1, the foreknowledge of God, the free will of man, I do not uh, think, or I do think, that there is definitely an argument and the, the data, scriptural data, to say that there's no doubt that man has a free will. And here is one verse that proves that. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. O Jeru- this is our Lord speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Our Lord looks out over Jerusalem and to his own people. He came into his own, his own received him not. He is burdened and he is broken as the Savior when he says, you know, here, here it is, I would gather you, but there were some who resisted the message and they denied him. I think this, that's one of the strongest arguments against irresistible grace. There is a free will. And again, but there is also the foreknowledge of God. He does draw us. But I believe in that drawing as, as, as sometimes uh, there are those who will say, I see it. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I see all of these things that you're telling me. But I don't believe it. Or they will say, I'm not ready. Or they will say, I, I can't do that right now. You come across them. Sometimes you've witnessed the people and say, I'm, I'm just not ready to do that. And so there is, there is a resistance because of the free will of man to the grace that God has shown them. By the way, even in having somebody show them and give them and share with them the gospel of Christ. That in itself is part of the grace of God when we are able to hear freely the gospel message. So I want, again, now, what I am saying tonight, and again, I am coming from a standpoint of my own interpretation, my own opinion on these things, and and we can differ, and guess what? We can still be good brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to share heaven together, and you'll find out that I was right and you're wrong. Um, I'm just, I'm kidding. Um, and, and the fact that, hey, we can still love one another, okay? We can still love one another. Um, as I've said many times, you and I had better understand something very, very carefully here. That we're going to spend a lot of time with people that, uh, in heaven that we disagreed with on earth. About a lot of things, okay? <laughs> and we're, we, we have different opinions on how things are done or what we believe or how things are interpreted. Now, I'm not talking about the major doctrines of Scripture. I'm talking about the the different uh, interpretations of Scripture. I'm talking about the different opinion on certain things and the way they're done. Uh, Listen, they're still, if they've trusted Christ, they're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, And and, and again, we're we're not going to have those who, because they don't wear the, the Big B Baptist name, 
Um, they're not going to be serving us as Baptists, by the way. And some of you think, well, that's ridiculous. There is a doctrine, by the way, that is taught that all uh, other denominations uh, are subservient to Baptists and they will be actually serving uh, Baptists in heaven. Okay. Uh, it's taught, it's been taught, it's been around for a long time, uh, and there are those that believe that. Listen, can I just say it as plainly as possible? As important as for us, I believe denominations are, I don't think they're a bad thing. I think it's man's attempt to, to get as close as he can to what he believes the Scripture teaches. That's not a bad thing. And so we shouldn't decry uh, that necessarily. As long as they're trying to pursue and they're, they're learning the truth, that's not a bad thing. But look, when we stand before God, as we talked about this morning, he is not going to ask us what denomination we are or were. That is not important in the sight of God. Now, I think it's important here uh, on this side of eternity. Uh, we identify with those who have these things in common. That's a, again, that's not a bad thing. But we can't take it to the point where, okay, uh, our motto is this. We're right, you're wrong. <laughs> and don't get in our way. All right? I'm surprised that some Baptist churches don't have that out on their sign. Well, maybe some of them do. I don't know. But there are some who are so arrogant about the fact that, that they are who they are, that they forget in humility that, you know what, again, there can be those who differ, and, and, and guess what? God can still love them and be gracious to them just as much as he is to them. They don't like to think that way. We like to think that, well, we've got a corner on the real knowledge of the truth. We, in fact, we have a monopoly on it. No, we don't. And we need to sit ourselves down again and, 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 uh, and really give ourselves a thrashing when we think that we are the only ones who know these things and the truth. So we, had, we better be careful with all those things. Let me give you one more thing and we'll be done for this evening. Here's the second thing that shows us the sufficiency of God's grace, and that is we are completed by grace. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10. This is one, this is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. I just love this. He says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, underline this in your Bible. He says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Isn't that a good verse? That we are complete in him. And I want to, again, encourage your heart tonight that if you are in the Lord, if you are saved, you know him. You've entered his rest. There is nothing else that you need to do in order to have that rest. There is nothing else you need to do to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you have confessed your sins before him, you've believed in him, you believe the gospel truth, listen, you're complete. You are complete in him. There are some that teach again that, well, in order to really uh, become a child of God, there needs to be a, a second working of his grace. And uh, in fact, in order to do that, 
um, you need to have the gift or somewhere along the way, you need to have the gift of speaking in tongues. Again, here's an example of where we will differ with some sincere people that most likely we will be in heaven with. But I think that we'll find out, they will find out that they were mistaken about this. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, bad thing to teach those who come to Christ and those who are fledgling believers to tell them, oh, by the way, you haven't really, um, you haven't really gotten through the process yet. Okay. In other words, things are not quite completed yet in this process of salvation. What you have to do to really experience the grace of God is to do this particular thing. I think that's a terrible thing to teach. Because what I find here and what Paul tells us is, look, there is absolutely nothing else that needs to be done. And the reason why, again, we circle back to it, is that because Christ has done it all. I think that's such a wonderful blessing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we'll get there one of these years. He says, therefore, he is also able to save them to the, what's the word? Uttermost. Who come to him through him. The word translated uttermost has been understood by some to mean completely, again, or forever. He saved them completely. Folks, you tonight, you personally, all of you brothers and sisters out here, When you come to him, you are now saved. You are complete. What a wonderful truth. Again, H.A. Ironside, the great commentator and preacher, he said, it should be noted that salvation to the uttermost does not simply mean salvation from every kind of sin, but is even greater than that. Salvation forevermore. Salvation forevermore. You're saved to the uttermost. All right, let's back up for just a second here. Why? How can this be? How can it all be like this? Because of God's grace. The the unmerited favor that he shows to the undeserving. And that's you and me. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the words. We thank you for these thoughts And these reminders, Lord, we know many of these things. But Father, we want to again, before we leave tonight, we would ask that you would help us to remember your grace. And Lord, remember that it is a marvelous grace. And we do not deserve it. And it's always there. Lord, help us to be conscious of it as we go and we, we go to the places of our responsibilities and our duties tomorrow. And Lord, I pray that you would help these dear believers to remember it throughout the week. And Lord, as you have shown us thy grace, Lord, help us to in turn show it to others by the way we live, the way we talk, the way we carry ourselves. And Lord, that in doing so, they will see this work, this testimony in us, and they may glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Lord, we thank you for gathering us today. I pray for 
us as we're dismissed. Lord, as we go our separate ways, that you will bring us back again rejoicing. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.